1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, I hope you will bear with me this morning. I'm feeling a little under the weather. It's just allergies, but my voice is not all there. So pray for me this morning as we did it. Well, continuing his analysis of where the Corinthians were going wrong in their attitudes uh, towards himself, Paul now turns his attention towards their motivation. Now, he's not thinking about their hidden motives, as we talked about last week. Uh, these, of course, we are unable to judge the hidden motives of someone's heart. But his assessment is based on the external manifestations that he has seen in which they, in the way in which they have behaved towards Paul. They, the, the, the Corinthians were dealing with pride, spiritual pride, and they felt that the Apostle Paul was, uh, was jealous of the attention that others were getting. And Paul has already told them, he said, look, he said, me and Apollos, he says, we're nobody. He said, we're just servants of God along with you. So the key to understanding uh, why they were acting this way is found at the end of verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, Now these things, brothers, I have applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to go beyond what is written, so that no one of you will become puffed up on behalf of one against another. So and inflate, they were inflated with a false sense of their own importance. Because of the certain gifts they had been given, they felt, well, I have this gift, so I'm more important than this guy because he doesn't have that gift. And Paul says that they were puffed up. They were full of pride in this. And, and pride, uh, it illustrates the self-centeredness that lies at the heart of the problems there at the church in Corinth. Pride has always been a problem. Pride will always be a problem. Remember that it was pride that made Lucifer in, uh, that made Lucifer into Satan. Pride and and spiritual pride is a very dangerous thing. And Paul is going to point out to these people there in Corinth. <clears throat> Look at verse seven and eight. He says, "For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled." You have already become rich. You have ruled without us. And how I wish that you had ruled in, indeed so that we also might rule with you. They wanted to be rich. They wanted to be kings. And, and it inflated with this false sense of self-importance. They forgot about the gospel of the cross. They forgot about the call of Christ to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. And the Corinthians, this is what Paul has been pointing out time after time after time. He said, all these things going on in the church there, all these attitudes that you have, they all go back to the fact that you have moved away from the message of the cross and the message of Christ crucified. And this is where they had, had gone astray, and they wanted to be rich and be kings, he says there in verse 8. Uh, <clears throat> now, you and I, we, we can't stand back in judgment over them because we are very easily tempted in the same direction. It's very easy to get caught up in this. 
But every time we usurp God's rule role as judge, we bear testimony to our own sinful pride. And Paul wants them to understand how serious this is by indicating two areas in which their pride was revealed. First, it indicates that pride believes that it knows the mind of God. There in verse 6, he talks about it. He says, so that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. That you don't go beyond what the scripture says. Uh, the Corinthians thought that they could read God's mind and they could predict God's judgment. And Paul's position is that the only certain place of revelation is the scriptures. This is why I have said many, many times, and I hope you will listen to me. I don't care if his name is John MacArthur or Bobby Baker. If he says it, don't take his word for it. See if it's in this book. See if it's in the Bible and make sure my opinions don't mean a thing. My opinions are just like yours. Mine are mine and yours are yours. But they don't matter. They don't mean anything. The only thing that matters is what does the Bible say? This is why uh, we, we are so adamant about sola scriptura. Scripture alone. And so uh, Paul's position is that the only certain place of revelation is God's word. And if that is added to, if that is subtracted from, then the mind of God in the scriptures is distorted. <clears throat> You've heard me talk many times how much I dislike hearing anybody say, God told me, or God said to me. If God said to you or God told you anything that's outside what this book says, don't waste your time telling me what it is because I don't care. And you should not care either. And this is where Paul say they distorted God's word. And as soon as we can imagine that we can begin to know God's mind outside the teaching of Scripture. Now, you know, back in chapter 2, Paul's already said, hey, the Spirit knows the mind of God. And we have the mind of Christ. We can know what's on God's mind. It's right here in God's word. And this is where we have to stay focused on this. Uh, as soon as we can imagine that we can begin to know God's mind outside the teaching of Scripture, we're in danger of elevating our own thoughts to the same level as Scripture, and the result is pride and rivalries and dissensions. I mean, we can look around in our world today. There, there are many denominations out there. There, there is one, the Roman Catholicism. It elevates the teachings of men to the level of Scripture. As a matter of fact, in some instances, they say if the two, if, if the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and the teachings of Scripture contradict, you go with the teachings of the church. It don't get any more blasphemous than that. But this is the danger that the church in Corinth was, was facing. And the result of this, when you get away from the sure teaching of the Word of God, when you get away and you begin to elevate one person over another, when you begin to think that you're somebody when you're not, then this is the result uh, brings about uh, pride and rivalries and dissensions in the church. 
There is another feature of human pride that verse 7 talks about. It draws our attention to. Pride also forgets how much it needs the grace of God. How much it needs the grace of God. Can I tell you folks something? Do you know that the scariest place in the world is right here where I'm standing? I'm going to be held accountable. And I need God's grace. I pray every time before I step into this pulpit, and every preacher and teacher should, God give us grace. But, but pride forgets how much it needs the grace of God. Human beings are constantly seeking to present themselves as being superior to other people. But the gospel of Christ crucified puts an end to all pride, which is why the message of the cross is so resisted. We don't like to think that there, Paul says in another book, he says, let every man think of others as being better than himself. How many people do you, how many people do you personally know that you'll look at and say, you know what, they're a better person than I am. They're more important than I am. Their needs are more important than I am. None of us do that. None of us do that. That's why we need grace. That's why the gospel points us that Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Okay? Now, you may have heard this before. What rights does a dead man have? None. Why? He's dead. And so that's what the gospel, so the gospel is resisted because it puts an end to such pride. And it tells me that I am nothing outside the grace of God. And whatever I have, I have received. In response to Paul's question, uh, the true believer says, all that I have is God's gift of grace to me. If he has given you health and strength and opportunities to serve and family and friends, they are all as much a gift of his grace as is salvation. Everything that we have has been given to us by God. And so Paul says to them, he says, you have all these things, he says, but why do you act like they weren't given to you? Why do you act this way? There's nothing to boast about except in the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot boast in our gifts. We cannot boast in our abilities. We cannot boast in our talents. We cannot boast in our, men, our money. We cannot boast in anything, specifically our salvation. We can boast in absolutely nothing except Christ. And Paul will say that later. He said, I will boast in nothing but God. Do you know why we can only boast in God? Because it is only by the grace of God that any of us are drawing a breath this morning. I love what Vody Bauckham says. He says, you ought to thank God this morning. You ought to thank him for mercy because his judgment should have killed you last night. And I believe that's true. And so we, Paul is pointing to the Corinthians. He's saying, look, you have gotten way off track here. You've forgotten where you came from, which was dead and said trespass and sins. You've forgotten what God has done for you, raised you to new life in Christ. But when you're called to new life in Christ, you're called to lay down your life. You're called to give up everything. You're called to die. 
to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And Paul says that the Corinthians had, had gotten away from this. And, and as I said, the only place where pride can be dealt with is at the cross of Christ. The way of the cross is the only way, path that liberates us from, to freedom and life and to unity and joy. Jesus, in John 17, his great high priestly prayer, just before his crucifixion, he prays for his own. He prays for his church. And one of the things that he prays specifically for is that they would be unified, that we would be a church that is unified. We, we have a common purpose and our common purpose is to glorify God. We have a common work, and that common work is to proclaim the message of the gospel. And so only as we go to the cross, only as we stay and remember what, what, what it cost the Savior to save us and what he did, can we have unity and joy and freedom and life what we need to remember, and it, it is by grace alone that these amazing blessings come to us in the gospel. <clears throat> How many of you, now I realize not everybody can, but there's nothing wrong with that. How many of you can remember who you were before salvation? I remember, and I don't like him. I'm glad he's dead. But I remember the day that I thought, I don't like being this way anymore. I want to be a nicer person. So I went and I said, Lord, I need you to save me. And he said, well, okay. No, it didn't happen that way at all, by the way. Didn't happen that way at all. I want to tell you something, folks. One morning, I remember this. One morning in 1989, I got up a lost, hell-bound sinner under the wrath of God, and I went to work. And when I went to bed that night, I was a child of the living God. You know what happened in between there? God did. Now, it'd take me an hour to tell you what all happened. Just suffice it to say that that was the day when Christ called me, when I heard his voice. And, and, and Paul is saying, look, you got to remember this, that you have nothing to boast about. You have nothing to brag about. Come on, say it with me. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is what? The sin that made it necessary. I'm proud of y'all. It's like you've heard that before. There was confusion in Corinth. Look at verse 8 again. Paul says, you are already filled. You have already become rich, and you have ruled without us. And how I wish that you had ruled indeed so that we also might rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You're, we're, you are glorious, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands, 
When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we are try to plead. We have become as the scum of the world, the grime of all things, even until now. So here's the situation in Corinth. You have the, the, the leaders of the church in Corinth and many of the others, and, and they were full of spiritual pride. And then you have the Apostle Paul and Apollos and Cephas over here. And, and, and they're just preaching the gospel. And the church in Corinth was saying, Paul, look at you. Look at how you struggle. Look at the things that happen to you. But Paul, look at us. We must be blessed by God. Because look at all these wonderful things. Look how our church is full of people. Look at all the wonderful, look how much money we have coming into the church. All these things they pointed to Paul. And so the question is here, who's right? Who's on the right side? Is it, is it this, this apostle that is struggling, that has his life in danger every day? Or is it the church in Corinth that has everything they could ever want? That's what Paul's asking them. And, and verses 8 through 10, they're, they're full of irony designed to warn the Corinthians of the dangers they're facing. We already know from the Bible that Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In John uh, 5, 24, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes in me and in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. But the Corinthians, it seemed, began to assume that all the blessings of the kingdom of God were theirs. Now, now listen, in a sense, that's true. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we have been blessed with every heavenly blessing in Christ. But there are some blessings that you and I will never experience in this life that God has given to us. But the Corinthians were saying, they're already ours. Now I want you to tell, listen closely, and tell me if this sounds like anybody that you hear in our world today. They began to assume that the future, that the blessings of the future kingdom were available now. And they were claiming to be a word that Paul invents super victorious and they felt that they had no need to wait for eternity and had no need for Paul or any of the other disciples see now here's their here's the picture the church in Corinth think that they have all the blessings of God okay now I want to tell you something as I said, they are ours, but there are many we will never experience in this life. They're for a time to come. But the Corinthians thought they were all theirs now. And they look at Paul, and look what Paul said here. He said, to this present hour, verse 11, we hunger, thirst, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, uh, working with our own hands, reviled, persecuted, slandered, become the scum of the world. So here was their idea. They said, Paul, look at all these things we have, and look at you. Look at all these things. You must be, God must be mad at you, Paul. That's the same thing Job's friends said to him. And so Paul is, is pointing them here. He says, look, when you get away from the message of the cross, which tells us what? That a crown only comes after suffering. 
Paul says many times, he says, if we're going to rule with him, we also must suffer with him. Listen, I think this is one of the one of the tragedies of the modern pulpit in America today. When we preach the gospel, we don't tell people, yes, Christ calls you and you come to him by faith, receive him and have eternal life. But I want to tell you something. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you everything, including your very life. And you will, you will, let me say it one more time, you will suffer. It's not that you might, not that you could, but you will. Paul told young Timothy, he said, all who, who, who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So the Christian life is a life of suffering in this world. But, but here's the thing, folks, this is not our home. We don't belong here. We have another place. Jesus said, John 14, 1, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. He's building us a room in his father's house. But the Corinthians, and, and like many today, they think if you're, if you're not, if you don't have a church that's just full of people, you're a failure. Hey, I had somebody tell me this not too long ago. They told me, they asked me how many we usually ran on Sunday morning. I said, wow, what are you doing wrong? And I said, well, I don't know we're doing anything wrong. <laughs> and he said, well, shouldn't your church, you know, if, if, if God blesses you, wouldn't your church be full of people? I said, well, not necessarily. You see, the world shows us how things should be. And many times in the church, we say, well, if we're going to, you know, the, the world says the more you do, the more you accomplish, the more successful you are. And we begin to get that mindset. But that's not the mindset of Scripture. As a matter of fact, there was one point where Jesus was teaching and preaching, and there were multitudes out there. And he fed them. And then Jesus began to say things like, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you can't be his disciple. You can't be his disciple. He said things like, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And by the time it was all over, that multitude was only 12. You know, I, I love what Jesus, he looked at Peter and he said, are you going to go too? He said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. But here's what the, Cor the Corinthians had forgotten this and what Paul is pointing out to them. Uh, in verse 9, Paul says that the life of an apostle was marked by public humiliation and, and denigration. And, and there could hardly be a greater contrast between the life of Paul and the Corinthian church. And in verse 10, Paul poses a question to them, which is the real Christianity? Who looks more like Christ? These who are walking around puffed up with pride? or the one who was suffering for the name of God. Paul said, who looks more like Christ? At the heart of verse 9 is the stumbling block of the cross. Listen, the cross of Christ has always been and always will be a stumbling block. 
When you have the preachers that stand up and say, listen, God wants God wants you to live your best life now. And if you're not, it's your own fault. You know how much I would love to see Paul walk into Joe Lowstein's church? But this is what the Corinthians, they were, they were doing the same thing. They chose the wisdom, the strength, and the honor of this world. But Paul came with foolish wisdom and weakness and fear and trembling, and he preached to them no other message. Paul said, I don't want to know anything among you except Christ crucified. Paul said, that's all that matters. And he says, once you understand the Christ crucified, he said, it will change everything. The Corinthians... We're not going to buy into this being reviled and persecuted and slandered. Today, there are many who are told to come to Christ and be saved. Jesus will take care of all your problems. If you got a bad marriage, he'll fix it. If you're sick, he'll heal you. If, you got, if you're broke, he'll give you money. Is that biblical? No. But you know what it does do? It brings people in the door. But you start telling people the gospel that, yes, you're a sinner under the wrath of God. But God has provided a way. And Jesus said, all who come to me, I will in no way cast out. But when you come to him, you come, number one, on his terms, not yours. And number two, when you come, you bring nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I claim. I know you all already know this, but outside the Bible, the greatest book that has ever been written is a book called Pilgrim's Progress. And there's a scene in that book where Pilgrim, carrying this load on his back, which represents his burden of sin, and he, he, he's trying to get rid of it, and he comes to the narrow gate. But he can't get through. He can't get through there. But then he looks to the cross, and the burden falls off, and he's able to walk through the narrow gate. Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. And broad is the way to destruction, and many there are that know this. But that's why the Corinthians and many today resist and reject the message of the cross. Because the message of the cross says, look, it's not about you. That's another thing. In many churches today, we're told that our salvation is about us. And listen, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. The ultimate goal, the ultimate end of our salvation is the glory of God. That's what it's about. And, and, and we don't like that. One of the most important points this passage is making is that the miraculous wisdom and power of the gospel is not seen in your popular churches. They're not being told that Jesus said you cannot be my disciple unless you do this. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him.
Rather, the power and the wisdom of God is seen in the believer's response to the world's hostility, which characterized Paul's own life. Look what he says here. Go back to verse 11 again. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. But notice what he says. When we are reviled, what do they do? We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to plead. We have become the scum of the earth, the crime of all things. When a believer is seen responding like that, knowing that it won't change the attitude of the opposition one bit, here the power of God is being demonstrated. You know what Paul said in Romans 1.16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? power of God unto salvation to everyone who will believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And throughout their lives, you know, every single one of the, the, the original apostles, except for maybe the exception of the apostle John, but every single one died a violent death. But yet today we think, well, yeah, well, that was for them, that wasn't for us. It's for us today. And, and, and here's the point that I'm making, that I think that Paul is making to the Corinthians. He's saying, when you get away from the message of the cross, when you get away from the, from the humiliation of it, that it puts us in our place, humbling ourselves before Almighty God and saying with the... With, with, with the the publican, have mercy on me, O God, for I'm a sinner. And God calls us to a life of suffering. And once we get away from it, we, get to, we begin to think it's about us. Then we begin to be puffed up with pride. And we say, well... I'm a better preacher than old so-and-so over there. And by the way, I'm not a better preacher than Joel Osteen. He's a great preacher. Except he's not a preacher. <laughs> he's a motivational speaker. Listen, I have no problem with Joel personally. I have a problem with what he teaches. And I don't look at myself and say, oh, well, God's going to send him to hell while he's going to send me to heaven. I don't look at it that way. We need to pray for them. And I want to tell you something. The same grace of God that saved me can save him. We have nothing to boast about. No reason to be prideful. When the Apostle Paul goes on being Christ's fool, blessing others, enduring suffering, a miracle of immense proportions is taking place. You see, and, and we've seen this in the church. And I don't mean just here, I mean in the church. Somebody says something bad about us. Well, you're going to let them talk to you like that. Somebody slanders us. Somebody lies about us. And we say, well, I'm not going to stand for that. And Paul says, why not? I did. You know, I read something the other day I thought was very appropriate. And I believe it was Paul Washer that might have said this, where he was talking about, he says, so 
somebody offended you? Has somebody offended you? So what? He said, who are you? Are you so important that someone's offense is something you have to defend? He says, you're nothing. You are nothing outside Christ. And in Christ, we don't need to defend ourselves. Doesn't matter who offends us. And, and Paul is saying, here's how you are living as a Corinthian church. Here's how I'm living as an apostle. Here's what's happening to me. He said, now, which one of us more mirrors the life of Christ? By the way, it was Paul and Apollos and Cephas. But this will only happen when the whole life is focused on Christ crucified. And that requires a genuine participation in his suffering. So much energy goes into how we should market the Christian faith today. And often this is done by pretending that all the blessings of the age to come are available now. If only you have enough faith. Never mind the fact that Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, move, and it'll move. You have to have enough faith to receive everything. Now listen, one day we will have everything. Freedom from sin. Freedom from sickness. Freedom from death. Perfect wisdom. Holiness and joy will be ours, but it's then, it's not now. It won't happen in this world. And we must not devalue our lives in this world by minimizing the great joy and blessings that are already ours in Christ. We cannot have a doom and gloom, and I'm not trying to present that this is a doom and gloom place we live. We have life in Christ. And death? What is death? Death is conquered. Death is dead. There at the cross, death died. For a believer, death is nothing but a step from here to there. That's all it is. There is much to enjoy in this life that God has given us, but we need to remember they're temporal. They belong to this fallen world. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that God gives us all things to richly enjoy. But like I said, we need to remember they're not eternal. They're temporal. And the only way to live as Christ's fools is to be mastered by the gospel so that we give our lives to spreading and demonstrating its truth. The Corinthians got away from that. Let us not do the same. Let us remember each and every day, the world may look at me and say, you're a fool because you let people treat you that way. You're a fool because you believe in this person you can't see. You're a fool because you believe that there's something better coming. And Paul says, that's right, I'm a fool. I'm a fool for Christ. And let us say the same. Listen, <clears throat> the message of the gospel 
is that I come to Christ and I confess that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I deserve the righteous wrath of God. And that there's nothing I can do about it. And God grants us faith. He grants us repentance. And we take that faith and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust in Him and Him alone for our salvation. One day I will walk through the gates of heaven. I will stand before my Father and He will say to me, Welcome home. But it will only be because I'm clothed in the righteousness of another. The righteousness of Christ. And Jesus said, All who come to me I will in no way cast out. But he also said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's not your decision. It's not your work. It's his. But Jesus also said, if you do come, know this. Count the cost. Are you prepared for what it's going to cost you to follow me? Are you prepared to lay down your life? Are you prepared to possibly lose everything you have in this life, including your life? He said, are you prepared to do that? He said, if you're not, don't come follow me. He said, because I don't want you. I can't, I don't need anybody like that. But we can come by faith and have every sin gone, every sin wiped away, put behind God's back, thrown into the depths of the sea, and then he put up a no fishing sign. He says, I'll throw it as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. Jesus suffered and he died that we might live. How can we, who claim to follow him, do any less but lay down our life for our Lord? Here in just a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And I want to take just a moment and I want you, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, let a man examine himself. And he talks about how some there in Corinth had taken the, the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And some of them were sick and some had died because of it. Listen, you're all welcome to come to the Lord's table. But you need to examine yourself and make sure you're in the faith. Because this is only for God's people. You're more than welcome to come to the Lord's table, but you need to make sure your heart's clean, your hands are clean and your heart's pure, that there's no sin in your life you're holding on to. There's no, no uh, unforgiveness in your heart towards anyone. We'll take just a moment. I want you to bow your heads and make sure that you're prepared before we come to the table.